Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for conversations with authors, illustrators, editors, and industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. I'm your host, Sam Saddam, and today we'll bring you a conversation I had with Bayat Barblin, the Vice President of Publishing and Data Services with Bowker. Bowker is the exclusive U.S. agent for issuing international standard book numbers, better known as ISBNs, a universal method for identifying books in print. Bowker was founded in 1868 by a German immigrant bookseller, Frederick Leipold, who realized that there needed to be a more efficient way for bookstores to operate and began compiling bibliographic information. ISBNs born out of this realization for more organized information are the unique numeric identifiers assigned to books which are commercially distributed. They're now overseen by the International ISBN Agency, where Bayat serves as the chairman of the board, in addition to his role at Bowker. Depending on the country, the issuing ISBNs happens a little bit differently, uh, but in the U.S., it's run by Bowker. RR Bowker LLC is now owned by Cambridge Information Group and operates out of New Providence, New Jersey. In October 2019, they released a report on the state of self-publishing, finding that self-publishing grew at a rate of 40% year over year and is not slowing down. Joining me now to discuss that report and more about the state of self-publishing is Bayat Barblin. Bayat, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here, Sam. So, Bowker's played an integral role in the publishing business for over 150 years, most notably as the founders of the Publishers Weekly and the creators of the ISBN identification system. Can you tell us more about the role of Bowker in our modern age of publishing? Sure. Now, I do want to say one thing. We are actually not the creator of the ISBN system, or do we, we were a very early, you know, the first ISBN agency in the U.S., obviously. Uh, but but thanks for <laughs> thanks for thinking of us that way. I think that is the way people think of us. So our role is is has expanded over the years. Obviously, we're not only the ISBN agency. We have what we consider to be the best database of bibliographic data for English language books. We have about forty million records, uh, part of our books in print database, uh, to which uh, individuals, companies subscribe to. They get the, they can license our data. Uh, we have a number of services and products that help publishers, distributors, librarians. Uh, the key for us is to make it easy for people to discover, to find books, and to and to experience and evaluate and purchase them. Uh, we are the U.S. and the Australian ISPN agency, um, and we also have a number of tools to help uh, libraries enhance their catalogs. And that's Bowker. So another thing I'd like to say is Bowker is part of a larger company, ProQuest. We're an affiliated company of ProQuest. Um, and there's a lot of interaction between what Bowker does and used to do and what ProQuest does, specifically, especially around the area of providing data for ProQuest. Uh, ProQuest does sell books into the library market. So the ISBNs, of course, the unique identifiers assigned to books. Tell us about how these identifiers are used in practice by publishers and the, uh, the booksellers today. Yeah, so an ISBN is essentially a product code. Uh, a product identifier. It's it's used to uniquely identify and differentiate books. So it is specific not only to the title, but it's also specific to the format. It's specific to the edition. If a new edition has has sufficient changes, uh, so that it warrants uh, a unique identifier. It's specific to you know if the, a hardcover book will have a different ISBN than the same mass market book or the audio book of that same title or, or et cetera, et cetera. So, so it is 
the key here for us is to make sure that people find what they're looking for and people can purchase and uniquely identify what they're looking for. So most purchasing occurs electronically. So it's important. So when 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 Barnes and Noble buys books from Hachette, they don't say, you know, send me 15 copies of the one with the red cover and, and you know 10 copies of the one with the blue cover. They send, you know, send me 15 copies of this ISPN. That ISPN will uniquely identify that particular book. And then the ISPN is linked to data. Uh, as you know, we we have in some cases as many as 100 data elements associated with an ISPN. The minimum is usually 13, 14. Uh, the typical ones are obviously title, author, publisher, you know, data publication, et cetera, et cetera. And we usually also have information about a specific ISPN, um, you know, three, four, five, six months ahead of publication. So our data is also helpful for uh, collection creation because you can, you know, you can start seeing, okay, what's what's coming down the pike. But the key is unique identification of a product. So what's the difference then between an ISBN and an EAN? An ISBN is an EAN. So if you look at an ISBN number, a 13-digit number, right, um, it starts for a book. It will always start. So for an ISBN, it will always start with 978 or 979. 978 and 979 are a GS1-designated book land. It's a fictitious country, if you will, um, that shows anybody who's reading it that this product identifier refers to a book and not say uh, uh, a piece of electronics or a, piece, or a car part or anything else uh, it is a, it is the 13 digit ISPN is essentially a European article number right? so it's so it's and this changed when we went from 10 digit ISPN to 13 digit ISPN precisely because we wanted to you know we had to expand the numbering system and it's now compatible with all these other systems. So when you look at a barcode, a 13-digit barcode that represents an ISPN, that'll be an, a, that'll be an EAN. I know you went from 10-digit to 13-digit. What was the reasoning there? You just ran out of space? Yeah, essentially, ran out of numbers. <laughs> just like we went from just having 978 prefixes to having 979 prefixes. And I'd like to, you know, since we're talking about this, uh, uh, not knowing who's going who's gonna to listen to this, I would like to make sure everybody understands that there is a key difference between the 978 13-digit ISPN and the 979 13-digit ISPN, and that is that while you can go uh, from a 13 to a 10-digit ISPN and vice versa in the 978 case, in the 979 case, you will not be able to do so. So it is important that anybody who needs to deal with ISPN has systems that are based on the ISPN number are ready for that. And if you're still using a 10-digit ISPN system, that will not work with the 979 ISBN. Also, the 978 ISBN will have a prefix of zero or one, which is usually, usually the, pre, you know, the 978 designates it as a book, and then the zero or one, or whatever is in that place, will designate either the country or the linguistic region. Now, with the 979, the number is going to be eight, specifically for the United States, uh, whereas the zero or one could have been Canada as well, or, 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 or Australia, for example. And so there are there are some changes there, but the main, the reason that we changed from from ten to thirteen is simply the fact that we ran out of number. Uh, and the other thing I'd like to say is that the ISPN is an international standard. There's about 155 nations that are part of the international ISPN group, uh, so it is it is very global and it's used extensively by pretty much everybody in the book world. So that includes retailer, wholesaler, distributors, librarians, publishers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, how does Bowker collect that metadata that's coming directly from the publishers? Yeah, not only, primarily directly from the publishers, but from others as well. And we collect it pretty much, I'd say, there are ways in which we'd like to collect it, but then we'll pretty much take it any way we can get it. So the standard way for a large, mid-sized, larger publisher 
Uh, and even some of the smaller publishers is an Onyx file. They'll send us an Onyx file, we will ingest it, and then we will also enhance that data. So for example, uh, we will add things like uh, media mentions. Has this book been mentioned in the media? Has it been in Oprah? And uh, has Oprah talked about this book? Re we will add things like reviews, author bios, uh, a whole bunch of additional information that is helpful um, to a bookseller or a wholesaler. We also get some data from books uh, from book wholesalers as well. Uh, then, if you're but if you but if you're not if you don't have Onyx, if you're a smaller publisher, uh, we also take things like Excel sheets. And if you're an individual publisher. You can go to our website, myidentifiers.com, which is where you can purchase up to a, a block of a thousand ISBNs. And it's where a lot of our ISBNs to indie publishers are sold. And right there, you can enter the details of your title and that will then in, be ingested into the books and print database. You can also, even if you're a larger publisher, your data will show up there. And you can, if you need to make modifications to the data, say because the price changes or you want to be, you want to have a more granular subject categorization, you could do that there as well. But we'll adjust the data any way we can. And we also have an outreach program where we actually actively will pursue publishers who purchased ISPN but haven't given us data yet and we'll ask them to submit the data. Because that's, that is really the value of the ISPN. It's not the number itself, but it is the fact that that number is linked to metadata about the title, and then that metadata is distributed, which permits uh, the reader to find the title. Interesting. So, what sort of work do you do as the chair of the international ISBN agency? Yeah, so it's a it's a non-paid position. Uh, I like it very much. But so the way the way the ISBN standard is organized is it's it's an, like I said, it's an ISO standard. The International Organization for Standardization out of Geneva assigns. Uh, you know, manages these standards, and these standards for everything, anything from the size of a of a steel pipe to you know the amount of acidity of some products. It's a, it's a, it's an organization that covers all sorts of standards, um, and they've assigned the international ISPN agency as essentially the manager of the ISPN standard. So the ISPN standard is part of a group of standards called TC forty six. And that's uh, uh, identification and documentation, and then within that it's SC9, the subcommittee SC9, which is uh, no, I think I think information and documentation at TC46. I can't remember, but basically that the, the whole standard TC46 SC9 covers all those individual standards like the ISBN, the ISSN, uh, the ISTC, ISNI, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, what I do as the chair is that the, the way the international organization is, is, is formed, it has an executive director and an operations manager, and then it has a board, uh, and I'm chair of that board, and we look at things like if new applications come in because a new country, a country wants to have its own, its own ISBN agency because perhaps for historical reason it was previously managed by another country, uh, or perhaps because there was a conflict that there was some disaster it cannot manage or it couldn't manage for a certain period of time, we'd evaluate that. Um, we look at things like if there are any problems in any nation, you know, if there's a complaint from the publishers in the nation because they have a hard time getting the getting the standards, we'd look at that. Uh, we formulate strategies or, or, or messages that we want to make sure people understand to help. Essentially, our role is to make sure that everybody understands how the standard works. Uh, to make sure that the various national agencies behave uh, appropriately, so that they, so that they administer the standard in a way that promotes publishing. Uh, for example, if a country were to limit the ISPNs that they issue on the basis of uh, what do I know political preference, 
uh, we might intervene and say, well, you, you really can't do that. And, you know, and, it's, and, and the way the standard is administered, even though it is a standard and should be administered in the same way in every country, varies from place to place slightly. And there are places where there might be difficulties. There are places where there's changes. We recently changed the, the ISBN agency that manages uh, the Brazilian standard has recently changed from the National Library to another organization uh, for a variety of reasons. But that's the sort of thing. So, it's a, so there's a day-to-day -day management that is taken care of by the executive director and the operations manager. And then there's a more strategic role or, or, a, or an oversight role. And I'd be responsible for that together with the board. You said very briefly the, uh, the political considerations that come into play. Is that a common thing where there's, you know, political censorship of books and does the ISBN agency have a role in fighting that? I wouldn't say it's a common thing. It, it happens uh, infrequently. And we have a role, yes and no. I mean, we're not, we are not a political organization. We obviously don't have any power. You know, we don't, we can't, we can't, the, the, the worst we could do is withdraw the agency. You know, if, if there were, if there were to be gross you know, acts that we think are really contrary to the spirit and the and the and the and the goals of the standard, we would intervene. And we have intervened. There's been a couple of cases, and I don't want to mention specific countries where we were getting a large number of complaints from the publishers in their country. It was taking an extremely long time for ISBNs to be issued, and we had a couple of meetings with representatives of that country. Uh, in that particular case, the, the standard was administered by one of the ministries, and and uh, and they've they've made changes. Um, there are countries that unfortunately do use, you know, they don't. The way it typically would work is something along the lines of, uh, you must have a stand, you must have an ISBN to be able to publish a book. You can only get an ISBN from a certain governmental agency, uh, and the governmental agency, you know, might decide that uh, you are not, for whatever reasons, you know, something is wrong with the way you you're running your publishing organization, and you can't get a stand. And we will. We will put some pressure on the country, but like I said, you know, it's not, we don't, the worst we could do is remove, is remove the agency, which is possible in some places, not possible in others. But what we try to do is continue to have a conversation. Um, and I think that's probably the best we can do. We will have a conversation with agencies in this country. We will raise concerns. And I think that in some cases we have been able to improve the situations for the publishers of those countries. We get a lot of questions uh, and a lot of clients from Canada, and I know that their standard is a little bit different. It's actually free to get an ISBN. Uh, so is that, you know, what are the, the pros and cons of that model versus Balkers in the U.S.? Right. So I wouldn't say that the standard is, is different. The financing of the management of the standards is different. Globally, uh, it's about 50-50. Half, half of the of the agencies are free. In, in half of the countries, they, the, the ISBN is free. But I would like to put free in, in quotations, right? It's it's free the same way um, healthcare may be free in some countries, meaning that uh, you don't pay when you access the specific product. In this case, you don't pay when you get the ISBN, uh, but you do pay for it when you pay your taxes because in, typically in, in countries where the ISBN is free, the ISBN agency is managed by a government governmental organization uh, and so everybody pays taxes and those taxes will pay the salaries of the people who run the agencies they will pay for the building or or, or development of of, uh, of software that may be needed 
the advantage that we have, and it's, it's an interesting point because it obviously comes up a lot. We are completely, uh, you know, detached from any government agency. We don't get any money from from the government. It, there was early on, my understanding is, and, and don't quote me on this because I'm not sure. I, I didn't, you know, there's no way really to know for sure. But I've heard numerous times that the that there was some discussion around whether or not the Library of Congress might run the internationalized the the, the uh, USISP agency Ye years back. They decided not to, for reasons that I I don't know. Uh, and even in the U.S., we didn't start charging for the ISBN until uh, 1990. And the reason for that was that the request for ISBNs grew tremendously. And the, the management of the agency, you know, the requirements to manage the agency grew enormously. So more and more people were required to, to, to run the agency. More and more people had to be on the phone to explain things. Also because a lot of people requiring ISBNs now were not publishers. So they were individuals who wanted to start self-publishing. So the costs, the costs grew uh, considerably. And then the other side of that was that we weren't getting, we weren't always getting the data back. You know, there was almost a sense because, you know, it was free. It wasn't really valued. Um, and so they started charging before I came here, and then you know we've you know, we've we've continued we've continued that model. I would say that it's interesting. We actually get requests from publishers from countries where the ISPN is free. They try to get the ISPNs from us, even though it's not free. And the reason for that is that because we because we do charge a fee, we've been we've been able to create a really efficient system. So you can come to our website. Uh, get a one, ten, a hundred, or even a thousand ISBNs, or up to I guess nine thousand, nine blocks of a thousand, and you can do that immediately. I mean, you you give the information, you put in your credit card, boom, you walk away with your ISBN. You have your ISBN. You can do your work, and you can get a barcode associated with that ISBN, and you can purchase a number of other services. Uh, and it's it's immediate, it's quick. There's absolutely no censorship. You know, you get everything you want, and you get it quickly. And for that reasons, people are willing in some cases, or they try. We can't tell them. I can't tell ISBNs to anybody who's not a, a U.S. publisher or or an Australian publisher in Australia. So I, we have to turn them away and say, "I'm sorry, you're going to have to go to your, uh, you know, your country's ISBN agency." But we use the funds we get to create a system that is that is efficient, that is quick, and that uh, and that works well both for the large publishers. So whether you're uh, Penguin Random House or whether you're you know an individual. Um, you will get the same quality of service and the same efficiency of service. Now, I will say, if you're buying one ISBN, you know, it's. It, I, I could see why somebody says, well, I'm paying $125 and getting one ISBN. Important to keep in mind that, yes, we're giving you a number, and if you think of it just in terms of I'm giving you money just for a number, uh, that may seem very expensive. But on the other side of that, we are taking your metadata. We will maintain that metadata forever. You come back 30 years from now, you want to make changes to the pricing, you want to make changes to, uh, you know, something in the, in, the, in the subject, we will make those changes at no extra charge. And we will then distribute that metadata to all and sundries, to, to, like I said, to wholesalers, to retailers, to libraries, so that people can actually find your book. That is a service that you never pay again for any of that. And we will spend as much time on the phone with you as you need. So, so for, for one ISBN, that is a high cost. Uh, the minute you start buying 10 ISBNs, which is typically what we recommend, because you're likely are going to want to have not just the print or a digital, but you're going to have both. You may have you may have additional formats. Then the price goes down dramatically. And once you get up to the higher level, so if you're actually so if you're running a business where maybe you need to buy 100 ISBNs, then the price drops precipitously, because economies of scale. Because it's a lot easier for us to deal with somebody who's 100 ISBNs than to have to deal with a lot of individuals that have one ISBN. But I'd say the biggest what we do 
uh, appreciate very much about our service is that we are continuously making it as efficient as we can, as quick as we can, and I think publishers appreciate that. So to that uh, report I mentioned a little bit in my intro here, uh, so back in October of 2019, uh, you released your annual self-publishing in the United States report. This was the sixth edition from my understanding, and what was the initial motivation for producing this report? So I. I wasn't here when the first report came out, so and I and none of those people are here, so I don't know what their motivation was. Although I have a sense, uh, the reason we continue doing it is because we like to see what the trend are. Now, so we're we're full aware, and I'm gonna you know uh, preemptively say this: we don't know every single book that's self-published in the United States because for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason is the fact that some of them don't have ISBNs. So we say right up front: look, here's what we track. We track books, titles that we've identified as self-published, and we have criterias for that, uh, and that have an ISBN that we know about. If you don't tell us about it, if you don't have an ISBN, we have no way of knowing. So it's it's fair to say we're not capturing every single book, but we are capturing the trend because we're comparing likes to likes year over year over year over year. Um, and the trend has been a tremendous growth. You know, even even more recently, you know, when people were saying, "Well, this is going to kind of flame out," it's going to, you know, yes, it's this great, exciting thing that's happening. Um, you know, early on when I started this job about ten years ago, but uh, it has just continued to grow, and it continues to grow, you know, tremendously. So this is not just a, 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 a quick, you know, a quick phenomenon. And and I think part of the reason for that is because the tools that are available to indie publishers keep improving, you know, so it's becoming easier for an independent publisher, for, for an individual even, to create a book that for all intents and purposes looks no different than a book that comes out of one of the major publishing houses. Uh, now, the content is the content. We can't vouch for that, but we what we try to do is making sure, and you guys do the same thing, that, you know, you've written the book and now we're going to help you go through the process and doing all of those things that a publisher would ordinarily do for you. And so what the report helps us doing is, you know, we look at similar types of data year over year over year, and we can track the growth. Uh, like I said, we'll obviously we're missing some numbers, but the trend, I think, is significant and the trend is consistent. Yeah, so 40% year over year growth uh, for self-published titles. So how is this changing the publishing industry overall? Well, I think it's been changing. I think the publishing industry has been changing considerably. I mean, pretty much from the very minute I, I stepped into this position, I've, I've seen nothing but changes. Uh, and it's, to some degree, um, a growth, a tremendous growth of independently published books. Uh, also, of course, the whole digitization pro process early on that, you know, changed dramatically the, the introduction of large, large booksellers. You know, I don't need to, I don't need to mention names, but we all know who they are. Uh, it's been a disruptive period for publishers and also a period with great opportunities. So what we are seeing is that in some cases, authors are are behaving sort of in a hybrid way. They have some titles published through a traditional publisher, and some titles published independently. And the reasons for that could be, you know, there could be could be market reasons. So maybe in one country, a, a book is published through a publisher, and then other countries published independently. It could be because there's different types of book. Maybe you're a university professor, you have some very serious books that you like to publish uh, through the university press, but then you have some books that you write for fun, and you're perfectly happy to 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 write those independently. On the publisher side, I think publishers have had to make adjustments. In some cases, publishers are now uh, happy to see individuals publish a book on their own and seeing whether it whether it takes off, you know, and then if you can go to a publisher and say, look, I sold, you know, X thousands of copies of this book, then, you know, it's a it's a an easier bet to make on you than just 
you know, taking a book that nobody has ever seen before. And publishers, large publishers themselves, are beginning to uh, get involved with having also sort of self-publishing platform or being, or, you know, or collaborating with self-publishing platform. But I think what it has made possible is there is a there is a wide breadth of content that is available to us readers. Uh, because when you think of it, if you're if you're a publisher, you're going to have to bet on a limited number of books because. Each one of those books represents an investment, in some cases, a significant investment of time, of money, of resources. And so there's going to be part of that spectrum of what, be, what is being written that you can't possibly publish because it wouldn't be commercially, it wouldn't make commercial sense. But with the growth of self-publishing, you're now, you know, you're sort of democratizing the process and leveling the playing field and making it possible for some either very, very small publishers or even individuals to publish titles that may be of little interest to a large part of the population, but of great interest to a small part of the population. And so the, so the, the, the spectrum of what is being written is much broader. Um, from the reader's perspective, you know, it's opened up all these opportunities of reading all kinds of content, uh, some good, some great, some not so great. But but you have a choice as a reader. You know you can and 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 what we like to see, and I think what is beginning to happening is that this this wall, this differentiation between traditionally published versus self-published, is kind of fading away. It's all content. Some content we like, some content we don't like. It shouldn't really make a difference whether it's published by a publishing a traditional publisher or an individual. Um, and then of course, the other thing that's happening is that it, you know it has definitely increased. Competition. You know, there are more way. You know, there's a much larger number of players, and that, by the way, is not just publishing books, but the the content that's available has grown tremendously at, at all levels. And so, it's not just books, but it's also games, it's videos, and it's everything else that that we have access to. All of which competing for our time. Um, so, it's an exciting time, I think, to be to be in 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 the in the book business for everybody, for readers, for publishers, for individuals, and it's a, all around. But it's a challenging time. Were there any surprising trends when you when you looked at these numbers when they uh, when you compiled the report? I wouldn't say that anything shocked me. I, I, I was not particularly shocked by the growth. I expected that there would be growth. No, I, I, I think that you know it's over the period of ten years. I was shocked by how much growth there has been. I, w I will say that, uh, and I was impressed by the proliferation of tools and services that are available to authors that that I was what it's not so much because of the report but but because of sort of our ongoing conversations that we have with self publishers one thing that I was also impressed with is the I think I think there's been a significant growth in um, sort of sort of a maturation of the whole of the whole view of self publishing and I remember years ago and I think I mentioned this perhaps to you before there was a book published called uh, not a gold rush and it was a response to the sense that, you know, there was a period when people thought, hey, I wrote a book, I'm going to sell it, I'm going to make a lot of money. You know? and, and pretty quickly people realized, well, it's not that simple. First of all, uh, writing a book is one thing, but then if you're self-publishing, you still have to do all of those things that a traditional publisher would do. So either you do it or you hire somebody to do it. And so there's been also a growth in, in uh, platforms that help self-publishers. You're, you're a good example of that. And in fact, I would say one of the things that I, I haven't said yet is self-publishing is a little bit of a misnomer. There are... I'm not really aware of anybody who publishes a book on their own, you know, prints it in their garage and then and then you know distributes it out of their out of their out of their car or something like that. Not to say that that's not possible, but but typically most and by most I really mean most, you know, 
upwards of 80% of so-called self-published books are published through one of the numerous platforms that have come up and then that they and they can do anything and we are, we do some of that they can do anything from helping you with editorial services with printing services distribution etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but uh, but I think that's been the more interesting part to me is there's been a realization that okay it's not going to be just as simple as writing a book and then starting the cashing checks you know, there's a lot of work there's a once the book is written there's a lot more work that goes into it. It's like I always make the comparison with, you know, you, you're a great cook, you prepare great food, but there's a big jump from there to running a restaurant. And if you're a self-publisher, you're running a business. You know? So there are all these other things that have to happen. And we'll help you uh, run that restaurant instead. <laughs> uh, the, the data and verdict seem to be clear that indie publishing is viable and here to stay. So as we go to this new decade, what do you view as the most exciting opportunity for self-publishers? I think the greatest opportunity is to create books that are really fantastic. And what I mean by that is, you know, like I said earlier, the content is the content. You have a good story to tell. Are you a good storyteller? Is it something that's relevant? Is it something that people want to read? Those are all things that you as the author will determine and either succeed at or not. But what has happened is that the bar of entry has has been lowered considerably. You know, it's you don't have to a go through the barrier of being accepted by a publishers to to make your voice heard, to to share your content with the public. You can do that even without a publisher if that's if that's the route you choose or have to choose. Um, it does require some work. It does require some investment. It's not you know I'm going to tell you right now if you think you're just going to write your book and then start selling it, well, good luck. You may succeed, but it's not. You know, the more likely than not, you want. But the opportunity is to is to be able to create content and to create books that are, like I said earlier, from the reader's perspective, really indistinguishable from anything that comes out of a traditional publisher. You, we have tools now available to you uh, that span the gamut of everything a traditional publisher would do, from editorial to distribution to marketing, PR to the quality of the print, even color print, the cost of actually printing books has gone down tremendously and the speed with which print-on-demand books can be delivered has, has decreased. So you can, not only can you publish digital books, uh, and, and that was sort of the beginning of, of, of self-publishing because those were a lot cheaper than having to go out and print books, but you can also publish print books because you can simply print them after they've been bought. So you don't have to make a large investment, and the people will still get the book in a timely fashion, and it's not going to cost you a tremendous amount. It's not going to be you, you do have to pay for it, but it's it's the the cost of all of this has gone down tremendously, and the quality of the services and the products available to you have grown tremendously. Um, you can be an individual publisher, you can write a book, and you can have that book distributed in the entire world, literally, digitally, and in print. Your book written in New Jersey can be made available to readers in Nigeria quickly, efficiently. Um, and that has tremendous implication, not just for the author who's interested in writing something, but you know, you could be you could be writing or distributing books that are of real importance to the people who who need to read them, and you can do that now. You, know, you can do it quickly and without having to, you know, sell your house to do it. And I think that's really exciting. Uh, I mentioned earlier the fact that more and more content is available that might have not been available if it has to go through the gates of something, you know, if, if it has to meet the standard of being commercially viable. So that th those are huge, those are huge opportunities for both the author as well as the reader. Uh, and I'm I 
I love this. I love that we have this opportunity now. So with the glut of content that exists, you know, I'm picturing uh, scrolling through Netflix for a half hour. So what advice do you have for self-publishers who are trying to stand out in that crowd and actually get their book read now that, you know, right. the, the hardest step at the end? I, I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts about it. First of all, think if you, if you decide that you're going to be a self-publisher, then think of yourself as a self-publisher. So you're an author, yes, but you're also a publisher. You also run a business. Now, whether or not that business has the purpose of giving you extra income or just giving you more visibility because you're writing about a, a subject matter that you're an expert on and you want the world to know about it, uh, it doesn't matter, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, create good metadata. Make sure, because metadata is how people discover your book, right? So I always compare it to the, to the dating site. You know, if you're just putting up a, 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 a two sentences about yourself on a dating site, you know, 50-year-old male uh, employed, and that's it, uh, that's probably not going to work. Right? So you want to have, you know, it's important. I cannot overemphasize the importance of metadata. Metadata is how people discover your book. Uh, don't try to please everybody pick an audience who is this book for because if you try to please everybody and if you write a book for everybody you're really writing a book for nobody there may be a couple of books in the world that everybody wants to read but that is not typically the way it works so decide who is your audience who am i writing this for uh, what will they be interested in um, get help now you may be an expert in, uh, in in grammar good then maybe you can do that on your own but are you also an expert in cover design are you also an expert in distribution and marketing so there are like i said earlier there are all these tools available uh, there is a number of organizations including ourselves and including of course uh, the book baby that will help you make sure that after you've written the book the book goes through the process to make it visible to the rest of the world you need to market yourself you need to market yourself as the author and you need to market your book there's a lot of work that goes into it so we tell people when they come to us that you've written your book congratulations now you now the real work starts uh, because people aren't going to find your book unless they know it's there and they won't know it's there unless the metadata is there and but on top of that you know there are all kinds of tools that you can use to to give people an opportunity to look to, to read a few pages of your book we we sell one called uh, um, book to look, for example, people can look through a few pages, use social media effectively. Um, you know, there's a lot of marketing you can do without having to spend a dime. You know, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, what have you. Uh, you know, let people know who you are. Why Why do I want to know anything? You know, why do I want to read what you wrote? What is it about you that might be of interest to me? And again, don't try to please everybody. But do see it as a bit of, have a plan. You know, start out with a plan, you know, have a marketing plan, have a, an overall business plan that is realistic. How much money can you actually spend? If you have a limited budget, where do you want to invest that money? Do you want to invest it in editorial help? Do you want to invest it in a, in a better cover design? Do you want to invest it in, in marketing and promoting your book? It is a lot of work. And in fact, I'd say, let's be, let's be really realistic here. I went to an author's guild meeting. This is a few years ago already. And we were talking about author's income. Now, these are authors that you've read. These are authors whose books you find in Barnes & Noble. Not authors, not obscure authors, but authors that you may have a few books of there on your shelves. Uh, Ten years ago, the average income was around $26,000 a year. This Now it is $16,000 a year. Okay, so, so if you're thinking you're going to quit your job and write, well, maybe. I, I'd encourage you to think that way, but be realistic and keep in mind, you're running a business. 
your product has to be, you know, whether from a reader's perspective, I don't care if the product is independently published or published by a publisher. I do care that it is that it is of quality, that if I pick it up, it doesn't fall apart, that the print is clear, that the grammar is correct, uh, that if it is a digital book, it is formatted in a way uh, that allows me to read it without running into all kinds of weird signs or cut sentences or things of that sort. So I'd say, you know, make sure you understand that there's a lot of work involved and that you should look at it from a professional perspective, become what somebody called an authorpreneur. Uh, you're an author, but unless you want to hand it over to others, well, then you got to do all the work and there's a lot of work to be done and take it and take that seriously because the rewards are worth it. You know, and learn from your errors, you know, learn from your errors. You, know, it, you may not succeed at first, and you may have to try something different. You may have to change the cover. One cover may work better than the other. I mean, there was all kinds of, there's tons of, what I will say, there's tons of literature out there that you can avail, avail yourself to. You can, there's a lot of people that are willing to help you, uh, but there's also a lot of information that you can get on the net about what the steps are that you need to do. All right, lots of great advice there. And uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you what books you're reading. What are you enjoying recently? Yeah, uh, so I've, I I like to read a lot of different things at the same time, and also listen to things. And I and and for the purpose, I and I, some people think listening to a book is cheating. I don't. <laughs> so when I say reading, I mean it in quotation. I also listen to some books. Um, I finished a couple of books by Murakami, Haruki Murakami, a Japanese writer. One I had one I had read before, so I listened to it. IQ eighty four, um, and one uh, more, you know, more recent, more recent killing commentary. That one I I read. And I like to do both. I also like to sometimes listen to a book that I've already read because it, it kind of gives you a different. You know, you have a when you read it, you create the voice in your mind, and then if there's a good reader, and I think that's key. Uh, you know, you can you can gain some additional insight by listening to the book. Um, I read The Water Dancer by Tanahisi Coates, and that sort of inspired me to then also read the biography uh, of Frederick Douglass. I'm, I'm listening to that, uh, and it's and it's really well done. And then uh, when I go to the gym, I like to listen to something a little bit you know, less difficult, if you will. And so I uh, downloaded all the Sherlock Holmes novels, and, and they're read by Stephen Fry, and I highly recommend it if you're into that sort of thing because he's a fantastic reader. Uh, he's an actor. He's he's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and then, as, a, as 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 I think you know, I grew up in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. I've been living here for forty years, but I do like to sort of keep up with the, my language skills. So I read some books in Italian. And there's a series um, by an inspector, uh, Montalbano. I think they've also it's also available in English, and they may even have made some movies about it. But I'm reading that in Italian. It's actually Italian with a lot of Sicilian flavors in it, which which is interesting to me because I didn't I grew up in the north, so I don't I, I don't. There's a lot of new words that I have to look up, and it's and, and I, it's fun. It's funny. Uh, and then I actually was recently on a long drive. I actually drove to Nashville, and I uh, I listened to the Dutch House by Anne Patchett. And then to, um, I didn't realize this, but she has a bookstore in Nashville. So I, I went to the bookstore and picked up a couple of other copies of her books uh, signed by her, which is which is great. If you're ever in Nashville, I highly recommend going to her bookstore. It's a, it's a really nice store. And then I have a I have grandkids. And I like to read to them. So I have a grandson whose name is Huckleberry, and I'm reading Huckleberry Finn to him. Uh, one of my granddaughters uh, loves uh, Richard Scarry's uh, Cars and Trucks and Things That Go. She's, I don't know if you're familiar with it. If you, yeah, you yeah I mean, there's a you know gold bug, the little bug that's hidden in places, and she likes to go and find that. Uh, and uh, I think that's about it. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's there's always a whole pile of books around uh, in my house, and uh, and I'll I'll pick up books here and there. You know, but that's yeah, another. It sounds like my house too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. I, I you know, and uh, I look forward to to continuing in this world and and seeing where it brings us all. Again, that was Bayat Barblin, Vice President of Publishing and Data Services at Bowker and Chairman of the Board of the International ISBN Agency. Our thanks to him for taking the time out of his busy schedule to record this interview, not once but twice thanks to a tragic recording issue. Uh, but if you're interested in learning more about ISBNs, check out Bowker.com or contact one of BookBaby self-publishing specialists at 877-961-6878 or info at BookBaby.com. Please also be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Until next time, I'm Sam Saddam, and this has been the Book Baby Spotlight.